And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here with Matt Watson. How are you today, Mr. Watson? Doing pretty good. Ready to talk about uh, some more of the hustle? I am. What do you want to talk about today? Well, I I think we should talk about common reasons that startups and businesses fail, but there's one other thing I think we need to talk about first. Tell me. Well, I'm worried about this podcast failing. Well, I think we're going to have to jump and build wings on that one. Because at the beginning of last episode, you told me we need to do a, what was that? A Rochambeau? A Rochambeau. A Rochambeau. Paper, scissors, rock to determine who the host was. But I Googled that and it said that uh, it's kicks to the groin and the last man standing wins. I Well... I don't think this podcast is going to work. That's how we're going to decide who the host I'm, is. I'm, uh, okay. And we'll do that for the next episode unless you want to go for it right now. I do not want to do that. You can be the host. Okay. Thank you. So I'm your host, Matt DeCourcy, here for another episode of Startup Hustle. So today we're going to talk about some of the top reasons that businesses fail. And our intention here is to try to help you avoid these things. Now, Every business is a different story. It's a different journey. It has different ups and downs and good parts and bad parts. But we've taken a little bit of time to try to get in to some of the reasons that businesses fail. Matt, do you have one from our list that you feel the most adamant about? Well, I I think we should start with um, just not starting, right? I mean, if if you don't start, you're going to fail. That's pretty self-explanatory. And I think one of the reasons that people struggle with getting started is it's hard for them to visualize how to get from point A to Z, but it's 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 like losing weight. It's really hard to say I'm going to lose 50 pounds, and, and just like starting a startup, it's, it's difficult. But I think if you can focus on losing one pound or, or getting from A to B and then carry that momentum onto the next step, um, I think like most things in life, that's the key to starting a business. I think one of the things that really holds a lot of people back is they tell themselves it's not the right time. And the right time is a myth. It's it's never coming. The right time to start a business could theoretically never come. At some point, you really do have to take that leap of faith, or as I like to say, you have to jump and then build wings. Now with that, it doesn't mean you shouldn't have a plan. Before you jump, you need to make sure you have all the materials to build the wings. But sometimes that act of jumping and you rapidly picking up speed towards whatever amount of altitude you started at will really light a fire under you to hurry up and get some things done. But I think the right time excuse is prevalent not only for starting a business, but for a lot of different things. So if that's what you're waiting for, it's probably not right around the corner. Well, the the timing ever impact the businesses you've started? Is there any reasons you started or didn't start one of your businesses? Well, as you know, I started my first business accidentally. Um, with that, no, not really. 
I might have delayed things for a very short amount of time before I did certain things. Like if I was going to launch a business that didn't really make sense to launch in the middle of December, I might have waited a little bit. But I haven't ever really put any plans off long term because it wasn't the right time. Well, you said you started accidentally. What do you mean? Well, from in my first business, which I talk about in Million Dollar Bedroom, I wasn't even trying to start that particular business. I'd actually bought some concert tickets and decided I wasn't going to go. I sold them and I made a few bucks online and the light bulb popped. I was like, so, I was like, wow, maybe I should do this again. So you solve a problem. You, you found a problem and you came up with an idea how to solve it. Right? I did. I did. Well, and so actually my first business was the, the same way. I wasn't, I wasn't looking to start a business at all. Actually, somebody else was. And they came by and said, hey, can you help me? And I was like, okay, why not? Let's give it a try. Let's give it a try, right? And um, I, so it sounds like both of us was just sort of saw an opportunity and went for it, right? I mean, that's, that's what you got to do. Let me ask you a question. When you, when you started that business, were you dedicated to it right away? I mean, did you really jump in? Because I did. I think I did. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, when I look back at it, I might not have put as much time as I did later, but I definitely became borderline obsessed with it and trying to figure out whether it was something that was good or not. How, how important do you think the dedication of the founders or the people in businesses at an early stage is for its overall success? I think you got to be all in. You, you, you got to go all in and uh, it, it's not easy. Um, I mean, you, you can definitely iterate on your idea and try and revise it over time and, you know, spend some time pondering it. But if you really want to make a go at it, you just got to do it. In the past, what were some of the indicators that said, hey, let's go? And rather than kind of standing at the side of the pool with maybe not just your foot, but now half your leg in? I don't know if I've ever stood on the side of the pool. So I don't know if I have an answer for that. I usually jump and drag a couple of people with me. Sometimes I jump in and drown and I have to kind of figure it out. And well, that's okay too. That's kind of like jumping and building wings. That yeah. uh, that sudden need to learn how to swim can have a pretty powerful effect on your overall dedication and drive. So we, we've talked in the first episode of the series, we both admitted that neither one of us are huge planners. But for those that you know, I think that that's in some regards outside of the norm. I think a plan for a lot of people is important to succeed, but we've also acknowledged that that plan is likely to change and change a lot. How, how much emphasis do you put on the planning part as opposed to the execution of the plan when it comes to a business's likelihood of success? Well, I think the plan is to solve a specific problem, right? Like I, you know, for, for your first business, it's like I have extra concert tickets and I want to sell them. Or for your new business, it's, you know, I want to help people book appointments, right? How you solve that problem could change, right? You, you get into it and you figure it maneuvers a little bit, exactly how you solve the problem changes. But I think the, the problem you're trying to solve shouldn't change, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're iterating and building and planning towards the same problem more likely than not. What about just the discovery of new problems that need to be solved along the way? Because I think that sometimes that can be good and really bad because it's easy to start chasing some of those problems and get yourself away from solving the, the very first thing that you set out to do. Some, some entrepreneurs suffer from entrepreneurial ADD, right? Where they, they Wait, sh solve. shiny things, what? Wait, they, wait, they, again? Squirrel! Oh, whoa, whoa. Yeah, I, got, I have entrepreneurial ADD. I think you do too. But, and, and that's a problem, right? But sometimes you, 
Well, I, I guess as your organization grows, you have a bigger team and you can do more things, but it's also good to um, have somebody to uh, take all those ideas and help you filter them down, right? right? And figure out which ones are the best. I read a great book recently called Rocket Fuel that was all about that um, that concept. I, re- I really recommend. But, um, you know, when you're first starting, you got to be kind of the dog on a bone and you just got to keep going and going and going. And maybe you maybe you end up solving a slightly different problem than you originally set out set out to. And that's fine. But you, you just got to just got to keep hustling. I think one of the things with Gigabook where I made some errors early on was wanting to add too many features that didn't necessarily directly lead to someone wanting to sign up for the service or someone that was in a free trial wanting to stay. They were goofy little things that I felt strongly about, but looking back at them, I don't think they brought anything to our overall subscriber base. And had I eliminated some of that noise that was around me, we probably could have, well, not probably, we would have been a lot better at accomplishing the primary mission and solving the initial problem. So I think that, you know, in some regards, I look back at some of those things, I say, wow, they evolved into something cool, and then so many of them didn't. Well, I, th- I think you bring up a really good point there on why uh, a startup or a product can fail is you got to understand who your target user is, what you know, who, who that customer is, right? If, if for example, uh, you're making a, um, a booking system, all right, and your booking system is only designed for salons, then the features would need to be very specific to that, and you would want to continually optimize for that, right? But but if you start working on how to do online booking for a salon, and you get halfway through it, and next thing you know, you're trying to do online booking for a spa and a dog walker and all these other things, then all of a sudden, the person that was going to buy it for the salon may not buy it anymore because now it's not designed for them. But you may find that the solution is more customizable and be used for a whole different use case, right? And so you got to kind of figure out who your target audience is and optimize around that. Because if you try and optimize around everybody, you've optimized for nobody. So your current business, Stackify, which is in the business of helping developers identify and prevent problems. Well, there are literally, there's an infinite amount of things that you may be able to detect. How do you determine which of those are important and meet the specific needs of the market you're trying to service? Well, for us, it's it's focusing on um, specific programming languages, uh, specific types of software. So for example, we don't support mobile applications. but yeah, for us, it, it's focusing on specific cloud providers and programming languages and different frameworks, and um, potentially there's infinite ones. Like we don't support right. a lot of older technologies. Most of our stuff is newer technology. Yeah, it's it, it's hard to pick sometimes, but you got to focus somewhere. So, a lot of times, people can identify or misidentify, if that is even a word, the market that they're aiming for in general, and. You know, that can lead to, in my, I think that also leads to a lot of bad spending, um, especially when it comes to marketing. And we talked about this a little bit in our last episode that originally I looked at 25 million small businesses, you know, hey, this is who we can reach. And all of a sudden I realized that was more of a problem than anything else. So 
you know, with what do you think you do if you start to realize your idea is not as great as you thought it was? Well, one thing they always say is to fail fast, right? You don't want to spend too much time, energy, and money chasing something that's just not going to work. And and let's define that a step further. Fail fast is you're better off failing in a month and moving past that whole thing than taking nine months to figure it out. So, and you'll hear this a lot. That's a really popular uh, buzz phrase right now, especially with people in the VC community and lots of startups. And it's for that reason. So you'll hear a lot of businesses getting X amount of funding and they'll burn through a lot of that really quickly. It's because they're better off eliminating as many things that don't work on their way to finding that one that does, now they can pour gas on it. Um, also, that has to do with, you know, adoption by the people in your marketplace. And you know, you're just better off to, to narrow down the scope of whatever it is that you're trying to do as quickly as possible. So when it comes to starting your business, a lot of startups have co-founders. Right. Yeah. And one of the big dynamics that leads to problems in an early stage company are the co-founders, their relations, their skill sets, all of those things. Did you ever have any big problems with other founders or co-founders? Well, I haven't had a ton of co-founders, but I've had issues with personnel and having the wrong people on board, which is in many ways the same thing. Now, I don't know if you know this. Do you know that they have couples therapy for business partners now? Do they do that for podcast partners? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Do you feel like we need to call in some? Well, if we're going to do that whole Rochambeau thing, we might need that. <laughs> we might need a different kind of therapy. Yeah. Now, with that, I, I say to people a lot, you can get rid of your wife faster than you can get rid of your business partner, meaning it's easier to do. Um, or husband. Yeah. Or husband. Yeah. Hus I should say your your partner. Yeah. Your, your life partner. Now, with that, the reason is, is once you vest someone into your business and someone owns a part of it, you don't have any control over what they're going to do with it in most cases. And there might even be extreme actions that need to occur to get people to do things. So what are some of the things that you do to safeguard yourself if you're going to include someone in your business on an ownership or equitable level? So there, I think there's a couple things there. Uh, one thing you can do is make the founders um, earn their stock by vesting it, right? So that's what I do. So maybe it's fifty fifty going in, but it's it, it you earn it over you know a five years or whatever it is. So worst case scenario, if uh, one of you has to exit the business, then you know some of that gets gets returned back to the to the company or the other founders. You know, I my first business, we I had a co-founder, and I want to say it was about four or five years in. Uh, we had some issues with my original co-founder and we had to part ways with him and it actually turned uh, pretty ugly. And he uh, sued us and um, got a court injunction against us. And I mean, there was a few months where we were sitting around trying to figure out what we were going to do if we were going to do anything. Um, and, you know, those horror stories exist of, of problems with founders and and actually, you, you we talk about vesting and all those things. Probably the biggest mistake we made is in my first company, we set it up so that it required a supermajority so that every one of the, the founders and the shareholders had to agree to do anything. And as you can imagine, that's a really terrible idea. Especially as you grow and if you add more people to that whole need to do it. We actually, what we do is I'll, I'll vest someone in 
over a short amount of time. But with that, I also put other goals and metrics in that might accelerate that process. Like if we grow fast enough to achieve X amount of revenue in X amount of time, well, then we've done our job. So everyone deserves to possibly have that accelerated. And another thing that I personally feel important of is about is I'll accelerate vesting if for some reason we have an acquisition event. You know, like it's not necessarily fair to the other people that helped us get to the point where we were about to be acquired and they wouldn't be able to get their full percentage or share because I chose to sell it out from underneath them before that. So if, you know, for example, more than 50% of your shares change hands in a year, that might accelerate someone's ownership of whatever. Now, with that, there are some potential tax implications. So if you're in that situation, check with your accountant or your attorney about it, because cashing people's shares out in you know, less than one or two year periods can actually make them short term capital gains as opposed to long and put your, you know, business partners or other people into uh, a, a weird tax situation. Now, now, I think one of the other key things we want to talk about is having a co-founder, I think, can be extremely helpful, but they need to be co-founders that bring something to the table, bring a skill set to to a, to the business that you don't have. So, for example, Mr. DeCourcy, do you think you could sell anything? Eventually. I think I could build anything. Right. So you think right. the two of us together could probably, we could probably be successful, right? Yeah, we should start a business someday. Now, if we both could sell anything. Well, then we'd have a problem if we were trying to build software. Yeah, we'd probably, yeah, we'd be yeah. in trouble. Now, you know, I think one of the things that I have a difficult time with or have had difficult times with others when it comes to doing joint ventures is, I, I'm willing to work really hard. I mean, I'll, I'll work 120 hours. If we're on top of the gold, I will keep digging until we not only find it, but get it out of the ground. And in the past, that's been one of one of the things that has irritated me has been the lack of commitment or the lack of effort from some people that I've gotten. You know, I've had a lot of people want to do these joint ventures or different things, and then they realize it's going to be a lot more work and dedication than they thought. And they seem to tail off pretty quick. And I end up doing the lion's share of the work that leads to resentment. And then I just kind of want to quit. I, I'm very reactionary. Like if you work really hard, I'm going to work even harder because I like to push that pace. But I think that's something that you should be considering if you're bringing on partners or other people or at least consider. You never know if someone's going to do a good job until they show up to do it. So you mentioned the you know amount of work and effort it takes to build a business and a startup, but how do you balance that with your personal life? Well, I wrote a book about that too. But with that, you have to be aware of it. I personally break things down into your personal, professional, and physical life. People ask me all the time, they say, well, what's a good balance of that? It's different for everybody. It's up to you to determine that. But the more it's grossly lopsided, the more that the other factors that aren't getting, the other categories that aren't getting attention in your life are going to come back and bite you. So if you spend 90% of your time working and 5% on your personal life and 5% on your physical life, you're going to get sick or your wife's going to leave you. And good luck spending 90% of your time working while you're going through a divorce or so, something like that. So you're saying the physical part of it's important because, so, well, let me ask you this. So there's, you know, people talk about the freshman 15. Is there like a startup 15? Yeah. 
Is that my problem? Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's definitely why we're both right. a little fat. Yeah, more physical. All right. Yes, all right. you got I'm going it. To the gym. Check, I got check it. mark. All right. I, well, you also have to train for the the Rochambeau contest. Yes, that's correct. To really yes. do some squats. So with the you know we're talking about the the whole issue of a co-founder or partners. What can be equally devastating is your selection of the wrong people to participate. And we're talking just like a general employee level. And I want to kind of attach a subcategory onto this because with that, I think a lot of people hire the wrong people and then they realize immediately that they've done it and they fail at making tough decisions. Now, now hold on a second. Does that usually involve hiring family? I, <laughs> that's a great point. Don't do that. Because that makes it really hard, right? Yes, yes. Now, I can I can say at my last company, my first employee was my dad. And he still works and there. And he still works there. Yes. He, he's, he's been awesome. So yes. big shout out to Mr. Dave Watson. Yep. But um, my sister, I hired one of my sisters. I have three sisters named Stacy, by the way. And maybe one day we'll I'll explain that because it's confusing. Even more confusing but in a podcast one, hosted know, by two yes, mats, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, but I had to, at some point in time, it wasn't working out. I had to fire my sister. And, and it's did, that, tough. did that cause friction or problems? Uh, you know, maybe that's why she won't talk to me anymore. I'm not sure. Wow. Well, with that. But we, well, that's a whole different topic. But, you know, for a different on, the, podcast. on the flip side of that, my wife worked with me for almost eight years and we were an amazing team. Now, my wife worked for me, with me for about eight hours. And then that did that happen. was it. And that's usually the case. And the, the same reasons that your co-founders or employees can not work out for you are the same reason that hiring your friends and family, that if you're going to hire your friends and your family to work at your startup or any business for that matter, you better make sure you don't have it put a huge value on that relationship because it's going to strain it. And, you know, Jill and I were like that for quite a while, like at certain times, but we were both getting what we wanted out of life and that made us feel a little better about it. So I honestly, I don't think my first business would have been as successful without her. So how do you realize that you've got the wrong people on board and what do you do to change it? You know, this is a, uh, it's a tough conversation. And I, I think the first thing that you have to realize is the whole concept of, of wrong people is something that continues to happen, right? So when you've got two employees or 10 employees or 20 or 200 or 2000, that's an evolving process, right? So for example, the, um, the person to be in charge of sales, when you've got three employees might be really good at, at hustling and getting sales and getting it done. But when you got 30, they might be terrible at managing other people, right? They, there might be a good salesperson, but not a good sales manager, right? And so the first thing you have to do is realize as your company grows that the roles that people are in is going to have to change. Just because they were a good salesperson or a good developer or whatever, that doesn't mean that they're all of a sudden going to be an executive in the company. It, it may be beyond their means, and everybody has to realize that. I, I worked for a company once that had this really bad habit of taking their top salesperson at a location and turning them into the store manager. And they couldn't figure out why their sales were going flat or not growing at that point. And the reason was you're taking your top earners off the floor and making them shuffle paperwork and stuff like that. So, you know, sometimes the wrong people, you can create problems with the right people. For me, I, 
I think one of the things that means the most to me at this point is having an employee that cares, like legitimately cares. And I, I mean, not only about the business, but about our clients and their coworkers and they're considerate. And these are the people that, you know, take a few minutes at the end of the day, rather than darting out the door at five o'clock, they say, Hey, is there something I can help you with? Or is there something I can help you with? Or they're willing to do just that little couple percent more at the times, you know, I, I had an assistant once that would oftentimes check emails and do different stuff later at night. And she was doing that to try to help me out because she knew that I had probably not quit working all the way up until that time. And I really appreciated that. It wasn't something I ever asked her to do is that, but I, if I have to make tough choices, I make them fast. <laughs> I think that there's a lot of opinion out there, but if you realize you have, all right, in my past experience, people that are good are good right away. They're never your worst person. And then you're like, wow, it's been a year and I can't believe that you've turned into my top employee. They're usually good right away. They're, uh, it doesn't mean they're the best, but you can definitely tell. Now, some people are really harsh about this. And they'll tell you the first time you think about making a change, you should go ahead and do it. Because on some level in your mind, you've already made it up. You're, you're having such high levels of doubt about this particular teammate that you're thinking about making a change. So you, you know, it's that your gut's telling you, you need to do something, but for other reasons. And, you know, we, we have a lot of reasons that we don't do these things. Oh, they have a family or they, you know, we just brought them on or whatever. But, you know, the fact is, is you have finite resources in your business. And if that person isn't meeting those needs and you're not committed to them in the long term, what was the phrase you used before? You need to free up their future. It's so true. And I think of like a folder with a sailboat on it <laughs> and an exit package and some lady, you know, telling me that, you know, you are going to be awesome at something. It's just not this. And, you know, your life is going to be fantastic and you're going to be happy, but just not here. Okay. And I'll go for that. Well, so let me let me ask you something though. So you're talking about having the right people on the team and the wrong people and but when you get the right people on the team, how do you keep them motivated and keep them engaged and happy? Because I, I think that's one of the challenges we have. And especially as an entrepreneur, sometimes we endure a lot of stress. Things are good, things are bad, it's a roller coaster. And I feel like a good portion of our job if we're good at it, is also being a cheerleader and a motivator for the rest of the team, right? The the problem with, I've had a lot of people ask me over the years, so how, how do I motivate my, my team or my employees? Motivation is something that has to come from within. You can motivate someone on a very short term, like, okay, Bobby Knight, basketball coach, but IU, it's been a while. Some of our younger listeners might not even know who he is. Well, at one of his basketball camps, he would do this experiment where he would have the kids run the deals. You know, they go free throw line, half court line and back or whatever right. those drills are called. And so he'd have two kids run it and it would just be dead silent in the gym. And then he have the next, then he have the same kids come back out and run it 10 minutes later. And he screamed at them the whole time and really scared the crap out of them. And they were faster. But the thing is, is that wears off. So I think in the end, if you want to keep, if people have that motivation and that motivation, motivating force has to come from within. And I think that there's some internal driving factors. You got to, people want to be work. They want to work on things that they're interested in. 
You know what they want? They want to win. Well, yeah, but at the same time, and well, that's a good They point. want to win. That guy will run up and down the court all day long if they're winning. Some will and some won't. Right? And, so, and for the most part, they will. And that, and that brings up a good point. I like to celebrate victories. So, uh, do, do you have anything that you guys have done to celebrate wins or victories in the past? You know, it's funny you mentioned that. So, you know, one of the things, it depends on your employees and who they are, but a, a, lot, of, a lot of people that you hire for your startup may be taking, you know, an excess from great jobs and taking a risk on you. And, you know, maybe they want to work for a smaller company and all that. But at the end of the day, they're, they're taking a risk, right? And one of the reasons they, cut, they, they show, up every, show up to work every day and stay motivated is the winning, right? They want to win and they want to see the company win. And they, they want to know how to winning. tell them how you're doing that. Yeah. And, and so I think my point is, I think there's a certain amount of transparency that helps. And some people are real guarded about financials and all those things and whatever. But at the end of the day, people want to know, are we winning or losing? Is our startup winning? Are we doing the right thing? Are we getting customers? Are we growing? And I think that's one of the best things you can share with your team, right? If it's the celebrating new, new customers, if it's, if it's showing, you know, revenue, whatever you feel comfortable with. And so to your point, we, we have a, a little bit of a um, tradition that we've built here at Stackify, where if we sign up uh, more than three customers in a day, the whole team did a shot of Fireball, which is cinnamon whiskey for those of, of you who are not familiar. Because what could go wrong? Because what could go wrong? I mean, we, you know, and honestly, we had to change it from three a day because that started happening too often. <laughs> <laughs> so that has evolved a little bit. Uh, and then last week they were making margaritas instead. But uh, we also have beer kegs and, you know, we, we like to drink a little bit around here. So that's an interesting thing because I see a lot of businesses competing to see who can have the most kind of things. They're, you know, like this. And right. I sometimes look at, at some of the, you know, your business is established. And I find that to be a lot more acceptable than something that's in month one. And they're really concerned about, you know, we need an extra ping pong table in here and we need to be able to do this and we need to be able to do that. And I, it's a difficult time to, it's difficult to determine, you know, what, how are we going to bridge the gap between having fun at work and uh, getting things done? You know, one of the things that I try to do is I always tell people, and I tell them this before I, I hire them, I say, I'm going to, I'll be the first person to tell you that you did a great job, but I'll probably also be the first person to kick you in the ass if I really feel that you need it. Well, I think and if, that's, you, if you can't handle that, please don't accept a job here if we offer you. And that and that's really important at a startup yeah. is that level of transparency. And, you know, as I mentioned, as an entrepreneur, it's so hard from day to day. I mean, I've done this for a long time, I've, uh, 14 years, and there are still days I wake up and I'm like, why in the hell am I doing this? Right. right? And back to the winning or losing, the winning or losing is not only important to our employees and our our team, the co-founders, everybody else keeping them going, but it's important for us, right? Like yeah. we feel a lot better as the CEO, founder, whatever, when we win. But right? I can feel and, better about the fact that I might not be making money hand over fist, but we're making progress. Exactly. It's and all to about me, that's selling. A win. Are we doing better than we were doing yesterday? Yeah. Can, can you see the light at the end of the tunnel? Are you making progress? You know, it's all about winning in those incremental steps. So 
Have you ever had anything in the early stage of a business that you just thought was absolute gold and turned out to really be fool's gold? Like perhaps a big company flashing their wallet at you and making you think that your relationship with them was going to take you straight to ringing the bell at the NASDAQ. We absolutely had that. So at my first business, we, one of the largest companies in our industry, we worked out a deal with them where they were going to resell our software. And we absolutely thought we were going to be thousandaires, millionaires. I don't know, but we thought we hit it out of the park. Right. And um, we sat around for, several months waiting for them to go make us millionaires. And they literally did nothing but waste our time. We had a similar situation like that, and I won't name who, but it was a company that approached us about wanting to integrate Gigabook in their onboarding process. And I asked them, I said, so what, you know, what would make this tick for you? What, what metrics really make this happen? And here we are two, maybe even three months later, and we had been delivering that, but I wasn't able to get them to sign up and I never did get them to sign up. And I wasn't sure. And I still don't know to this point, I could have just been involved in a very expensive science experiment. Well, I, I've seen similar problems, and I think that brings us up to another topic maybe we should mention. A lot of startups, when they first build their product, if it's a software product, is they figure out if they should have a free or a freemium version of their software. And I, I think a lot of them go into it kind of haphazardly and not knowing what the ultimate strategy is and why they're doing a free version. Have you ever had free versions of your software had experience with that? I wanted to do that in 2015. I wanted to make it free for the entire year. And I let the people around me actually talk me out of it because they were saying, we need revenue, we want to show growth, blah, blah, blah. And I think it's one of the biggest strategic errors I made because we didn't really end up picking up many, if any, users that year because we had so many problems. But having people come in and spend more time using it because they weren't driven out by the need to pay would have probably given us a heck of a lot more insight and data about what we really needed to be focusing on. Well, one thing from my experience is the users that pay the least and pay nothing are the biggest pain in the rear. Yeah, no, I, no comment there. I, I think the reason why, what are you trying to say? Nothing. All right. Gigabook is awesome. Um, that, that wasn't my point. Okay. Um, they don't have any skin in the game, right? They, they're not paying for this. They, you know, it, it's the ones that pay for it that try and maximize their usage out of it and uh, get the most out of it. It's the ones that aren't paying anything that can just be the biggest nightmare of all. Do you know the what I believe to be the best four-letter word in all of sales other than sold? It's next. Next. Sometimes you just have to move on to the next guy. And I've talked to you about this, you know, not in, a, in the recording studio about it, but I've in many ways fired some of our users before, right? Uh, you know, I, we had one particular user that was putting out 95% of our support tickets right. at one point, And that was significant. And I just literally had to tell this lady, I said, I, I just don't have the resources and manpower or even interest. And it, they were never problems. They, it was user error and someone just being confused or just not even trying. And every time they had a question about anything, we we're getting a ticket and, you know, we, we want to react to that stuff, but you end up chasing your tail on a lot of stuff. So there, I think free can work though. 
I think it yeah, depends on the business. Yeah. Um, and so Stackify is actually a good example of this. We have a free product, but it's a different product. So we, our flagship product that we sell is not free in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but we built a free tool that we built specifically to be free that was a lead generator. And so we get hundreds or a thousand plus people a month that will download that free tool. But, and we built it as a lead generator. It was built for that. And there's other companies that, that do this sort of stuff. Like HubSpot is real famous for how good they are at inbound marketing and inbound sales and marketing. And they have cool, like free website grader tools and stuff like that. And the whole reason they built those things is just to get people to use them and build awareness and, and all that about their paid products, but they're not giving away their paid products. They built these other things that are free. Didn't you do something like that for Gigabook? I did actually, but it, it's much like you're saying, it's a completely different product. I actually acquired another platform that had a bunch of web developer tools in them, and they were the things that you can usually find for free if you go and look. But we put them, this particular platform had, you know, bundled them all into one spot and had some really cool stuff in it, but they were having a hard time generating some meaningful revenue. And I felt, I, I personally feel that the web developer is a huge friend to our business because they have clients that want booking added to their site. And so if we can do something, and it didn't cost me a lot to buy that platform. Uh, we have two or three people a day sign up for it. And it's a lead generator. It is. It is. And we and I've noticed since we put it on there that I have more people sending in comments to us that say, I'm a developer and I'm installing this for a client. But with that, you know, I didn't necessarily have to do that. But I felt like if I can do something to make these people's lives a little easier, that at least we hope they'll think of us when it comes down to it. And I don't know how many do. but Well, and I think some of the people listening to to this will probably think, well, isn't the free version of my software a lead generator for the paid version of my software? Well, what we're talking about is it, they were different tools. It wasn't our, our paid product. And, and for some people, maybe that's right. Um, I think it all depends. You've got to understand your users. You've got to understand, okay, I can give them this thing here for free and I can entice them to pay and what percentage do it. Like you got to figure all the mechanics out of that thing. You also have to make sure that if you're providing something for free, that doesn't have an enormous amount of cost. I mean, yeah, that's where I was going with that because some of the stuff that would be associated, like for example, it would be very difficult for me to give you a free booking platform that sent text messages because right. I got to pay for it. Well, think about somebody like Uber. How many how many free rides have they given away? A lot. I mean, they're they're paying people to drive people around town for free. Yeah. I mean, it takes a serious amount of money to buy a market like right. that, and so. If you've got all the money in the world, I guess go for it. And I think, you know, their approach with that is getting people to understand and adopt something that seems foreign. And they do have a little more capitalization than I than Hey, I they're, they're comfortable with losing so, like billions of dollars a year. So. Let me ask you a question. So if I'm a big company and I call Stackify, will you, uh, will you build me something and then let me decide if I want to buy it afterward? Probably not, no. I won't ever do that. I mean, I'll do anything they want if they buy the company. Is that the same thing? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's and and everyone listening, take note that you can do whatever you want with Matt Watson's company if you're willing to buy it. Yeah. So that's what I used to say all the time. I think that that what but what we're mentioning here, I feel very serious about because especially early, it's easy to get hypnotized 
by the size of a company that is courting you. And there's a few things that you probably need to know is I've never once in the last 10 years seen a deal come together quickly with a big, big company. You're talking about as a customer or acquirer? As, no, I'm talking about providing services or doing business right. with other companies. The bigger they are, the slower they move. They typically need more people to decide about it. They've got a longer approval process, and they're usually busy doing 10,000 other things. So it wouldn't, you know, don't be surprised or shocked or think they're not interested when they schedule a call with you in two and a half weeks from today. Now, this brings up a really good topic, though, that if you're starting a new company, you got to understand who your target customers are. And one of the reasons you could fail is if you're only targeting those super large enterprises that move that slow. It makes the path to revenue a lot longer, for sure. It makes it really difficult. And sometimes you're better off if you focus on smaller companies that can move quickly. The way I like to look at it is I'm going for the big accounts and the accounts that have a lot of users in it. And I look at if I'm doing that properly and I'm marketing in that well, then the smaller accounts that trickle in as a result of that are a byproduct of what I'm doing on a larger scale. I think it's a lot harder. I, I equate selling to fishing. And if you want to get a whale in the boat, well, you have to have a net or whatever it is that's capable of bringing in a big fish. If you go out in a little tiny rowboat and you have one of those little nets that, you know, your kids catch butterflies with, any and most fish are going to swim through that. Now with that, if you bring the big fish home, you can feed the village for the whole winter. But if that's also what you go out for and you don't get anything at all, well, there you go. You know, so, you know how that story goes too. So, so the, the lesson learned there is the net has to have small enough netting that you still bring home the minnows. Correct. Is what you're saying. Maybe not the minnows, but more like those fish that are at least the size of my hand. Okay. So I think that we can wrap today up by, with a few words about what can happen when you stick with some things a little too long. And, you know, we just kind of handed on that with the approach to selling certain things, certain sales processes or things that have a longer life cycle. But what about just everything in general? How do you know when to bail on something or to, you know, shift or pivot to something different? Well, there's a couple of things there I can I can think of. So the earlier example I gave of we thought we had this big partnership that was going to make us millionaires, right? Like, how long do you stick with that? I mean, that that's one side of this. Um, the other side of it is, um, man, there, there's a lot of different sides to it. For me, if what I'm doing or what I'm chasing isn't going to directly correlate with my business building process, then it's a red flag. And some of the things, too, is, and you were talking about these larger accounts, you have to establish some rules and some boundaries in a way. And I don't know if that's necessarily like you want to put that, here's the rules and boundaries for dealing with me. But with that, I do mean that you have to be strict within your business. And one of the things when I look back at our relationship with the large company that never ended up with us doing business with them is we, I, it, I was two months into this process and I realized, wow, I haven't really even talked about what this is going to cost them. So if they're not asking questions like that along the way, 
those aren't buying those aren't buying signals you know interested buyers do have objections with what you're selling and they do ask questions well what's this going to cost how does this scale how are you going to be able to support this how quickly can we turn this around so if you're dealing with situations or or having relationships with people that aren't asking buying questions it you know, it might not happen in the first meeting or two, but if you're way down the road and you're not getting some of that stuff, you need to either try to get it or consider the fact that you might be chasing your tail a little bit. When I think of this topic, I think largely of uh, different forms of sales channels, kind of like the partnership, but other sales channels as well. So use AdWords as an example or Facebook or any or any kind of, of marketing or sales channel. And it, it's always the balance of, or do you spend too much time and energy trying to perfect something that is not providing enough value or, you know, you have some good success stories with AdWords, right? right. Where it's like you had to spend a lot of time into it, right? You could have done it for a couple of weeks and said yes or no and bailed, but sometimes the persistence, you're able to make it work and, and it's, uh, and you've done a good job of optimizing it from my understanding. Um, but it, it's really hard to, to find the the balance of, how long to stick something out uh, and keep trying, gnawing on the bone versus jumping onto something else. And remember, the longer you stick with it, if it has some, if it has a relatively high expense, the more you need the results to benefit you to even break even or build something. You know, I think one of the things that's important to mention that that you brought up was. You know, am I spending a whole lot of time perfecting something that's never going to have a high ceiling? Like, even if I do get this right and I'm the best at it, where am I at? So if you perfect AdWords, you're going to get three new accounts a month. Maybe. That's it. Maybe. And for me, it was more about improving the overall performance because, right. you know, if you, you know, spending double on something then you're going to be able to afford is not an economy. You know, if you go and you're, if you go to the casino and you, you play blackjack and you lose, you know, six out of 10 hands, well, you're on your way to going broke if you're going to keep that up. So, you know, these things can eventually kind of gnaw at you and, and you need to pay attention to them. So, you know, if you feel like you're not making uh, adequate progress in whatever it is that you're chasing, always take a minute and try to evaluate when and where you can get better. I think this is probably a good time for us to wrap up. You want to come back and do this with me again another time? As long as I don't lose this uh, Rochambeau thing. Everyone should know I'm a lot bigger and taller than Matt Watson, so I will probably be favored. But he's he's kind of nasty. I'm quicker. Yeah, tenacious. He's younger than me, too. But so. I, I yield. You win. There we go. I will be back as your host for episode four. Mr. Watson, thanks for another enjoyable podcast. Thank you. See you guys. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.